Welcome to Larpender Life, the podcast about HP St. Paul in the 80s and 90s. I'm your host, Dave Carey. Your life changes right there in a, in a moment. To get things going at the Steak and Ale, he would go over and open a tab, and anybody from the office was was welcome to go over there and, and join him in conversation. And we did treat everybody with respect. It's a good life. This is episode number three, and today's guest is Gary Blasberg. Gary had a long career in the services side of HP. If you missed episode zero, go check it out now so you can find out what this podcast is all about. And now, here's my discussion with Gary. All right, everybody. My guest today is the illustrious Gary Blasberg. Gary, I really appreciate you joining me here today. Oh, it's, it's great to be here. I, I love this idea. Uh, let's start out with uh, a little a little background. How did you first hear about HP and get connected to HP? What was what was that like? Graduated from Iowa State um, in 1976 in the spring, and um, back then, I don't know how it works on campuses, but now, but you used to sign up. Uh, different companies would come to campus, and you'd get on their interview list and uh, HP was one I definitely wanted to talk to to see what positions they had available. I was graduating with a computer science degree with minors in engineering and so I wanted to touch base with them. They had a great reputation back then uh, that I was aware of. Of course, the the 35 HP 35 uh, calculator had just hit the engineering market a couple of years earlier. In fact, I took one of the last required slide rule courses at Iowa State. And oh, that wow. was all changed because of the HP 35 calculator. So um, so I signed up for them and got an interview, um, got an interview trip. In fact, I took, uh, I graduated with the right degree at the right time because I had eight, eight trips um, with different companies, got seven offers. HP was one of them. And the only competition really was uh, Texas Instrument because I had gone down there for an interview, really liked the position they had offered. And HP had their offer on the table. Texas Instrument was slow. In fact, I remember calling them to say, I've got until Friday to accept another offer. If I don't hear from you, I'm going to accept it. And uh, um, so it turned out I didn't hear from them. I accepted the offer from HP. and. that was that was the start of my career at HP, and, and and the rest is history. It is, but it's one of those little things where if they'd have come through, I would have taken the, TA, the Texas Instrument offer. It's like your life changes right there in a in a moment. <laughs> and, and isn't it uh, amazing how there's so many little decisions? Well, I guess it's not a little decision. Maybe at the time, it thinks it seems like a a little decision because you probably didn't envision working for HP as long as you did at the yeah. time, but Exactly. Uh, end up, like you say, changing your life. Uh, so when you did your, your interview, you said you, they flew you. Did they fly yeah. you up to St. Paul or did you go somewhere else? I actually flew to Chicago. I was hired in Chicago and interviewed with uh, Willard Harlow, who was the HR 
um, regional manager at the time. So you, you started in Chicago then, or were you just hired in Chicago? Actually started in Chicago. They uh, put me up at a YMCA oh, wow. uh, for six weeks because um, they were starting a new program to train customer engineers where they would send you out to the board repair operation in Mountain View. And, and so I um, just did six weeks in Chicago, then flew out to um, the Bay Area and, and worked in the board repair facility for six months. In fact, um, uh, actually got hired, you know, hired to say, you know, if you don't want to go back to the Midwest, we'll, uh, we'll keep you on here full time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, when it was time to go back, they said, you're fully trained and um, at that time, I had listed St. Paul as my preference when I hired on with HP, and there was an opening. And so instead of going back to Chicago, then I, I went to St. Paul, it was probably November, December of 1976. Wow. So late 70s, uh, you were staying, that's the disco era. You were staying at a YMCA. You must have been a big Village People fan, I suppose. You were actually living that. I wasn't on the sales side of things. So we stayed at the YMCA. We were on per diems, uh, not the open checkbook that the salespeople had. <laughs> so think about the the roles then you played over your career. Can you can you kind of walk me through where you went from there, from your initial thing on forward? And uh, I was in St. Paul for two years, and then they needed to start an operation in Des Moines because we had such a base of customers there. And so I actually uh, raised my hand and uh, said, I'll, I'll start that. And so it was a, an outpost CE essentially that was off the Iowa city office. And uh, it grew so quick in a year and a half after I was there, I became the district manager. I was hiring people like at least one a quarter, if not more in 1980, um, St. Paul was getting to the point where they needed a second district manager there, um, actually worse than, than I was needed in Iowa. So I, I moved back to St. Paul and managed the Iowa district as well for about, uh, I would say, a year or so. And then they hired somebody else in, in, uh, in Iowa. And, and so it was Mike Hayes and myself for quite some time in, in the uh, St. Paul office on Larpenter. You think about some of the people you mentioned, Mike Hayes. Um, I'm sure, I'm sure he was he would be one you would mention. He and maybe some others that you can talk about who were important and influential people that you remember that helped helped you along the way. I, th you know, Mike Merrill, who was the area CE manager for um, uh, a bit, and as well as uh, you know the area manager Paul Shermack. Some of the you know some of the old real old timers um, that worked in the computer service area was John Waterworth and uh, Joe Ziegler. <laughs> so everybody remembers Joe, he would smoke at his desk and he would have, uh, he would set, set his cigarettes up on the filter. Instead of putting them in an ashtray, we just set them straight up and down. And, and then he'd have more than one going at the same time. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Times are different these days, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you talked about sort of key decisions, um, you know, a key decision earlier on um, in your career. Can you think of some other places where, you know, because I, I know from being a district manager, you, you've helped, you know, later on, you, you went on to some other things as well. And 
some of the consulting business and so forth. Can you think of other sort of forks in the road or key decisions that you made that either were good or bad or yeah. anything? Um, I, from the district manager position, I became a field manager where I had all the district managers reporting to me. And I repair, reported to, let's see, at that time would have been Greg Kodas. Um, and he had other areas of logistics and escalation things that reported into him but I was a, a field manager and then they changed the structure, you know, one of HP's reorgs and got rid of all field managers. And so I had some decisions to make at that point. And I ended up taking on um, a support sales job and uh, had 19 people reporting to me. And I had sort of uh, the whole Midwest all the way down through Texas. And that turned into be a, a very demanding job because it was the first real organization of support sales in a field operation. I did that for a couple of years. I, we were relatively successful, I would say, but the travel just became too much. And I had three children at the time, all 92. They were kind of in that range of uh, eight to four years old, three years old, and a lot to handle for my wife and uh, with me being on the road almost three to four days a week. And so um, I actually... Um, uh, asked to take a uh, another district manager job. Well, actually, from there, I, I actually became an escalation manager when that opened up because I thought a little less travel. And then eventually ended up back in a district um, manager job for about a year in St. Paul before they came up with a network solutions group where I had Kelly Dewar and Joe Comet and Steve Larson locally reporting to me. Um, even Glenn Claver was in our group for a while. Uh, Tom Bottensek had several people locally, plus um, people throughout the Midwest region. Uh, it was it was kind of an exciting time. So I ended up staying in the network group until 2004 when I switched, totally switched and went into the PC group and then ended up managing that group and did that until um, the end of my career, December of 2015. Let's change gears a little bit and just Think back to life on uh, on Larpenter Avenue um, back in the '80s and '90s, and what that was like. And when you think about that time, you know what stands out in in your mind. Anything interesting or special about the culture that that you think of? There was no work from home at that time, so we were all office based, and and so there was a a lot of uh, social activities. Um, played on the the basketball team, the softball team, and just all the things that would go on in the office, you know, the uh, the beer bus on Fridays. And, you know, I remember when fruit and donuts were brought into the office every morning, you know, the kitchenette. So you could put your, put things in the refrigerator and use the, the, the microwave. In fact, I remember one incident where, you know, for an afternoon snack, people would use microwave popcorn. In fact, I think it was available in the vending machine and, it usually gets set for a couple minutes to to do a bag of popcorn and someone punched too many buttons, added an extra zero on the end. And it was uh, over 20 minutes. Oh and my. of course they went back to their desk and, and uh, all of a sudden the, the smoke was, you could, everybody could smell it first. And then it's like, what is that? And then just a billow of smoke coming out of the kitchenette. I think they actually pulled the fire alarm. And of course uh, we were, across the street from the Falcon Heights fire department, a couple guys came running over. Then I think they actually pulled the fire truck out of the, <laughs> out of the garage to drive 
about a uh, hundred yards and, and parked it by our office and, and came in and, and found the source. I think they did get out the, the fire extinguisher to cool things down, but uh, it, it smelled like popcorn in the office for quite some time after that. Oh and God. no, I don't, uh, I think I have an idea who, who, um, who was absent-minded that day, but I won't mention their name. No, this is a, <laughs> this is a public uh, podcast. So, uh, that's I think the probably the statute of limitations has expired on uh, popcorn by now. But um, so you you talked about socializing, and that I mean that's something that I think is going to be a common theme. Um, you know, as as I go through these discussions with people, and I know um, you you mentioned uh, you know the couple of the sports teams, and talked a little bit about Fridays. But do you remember uh, ever? heading to steak and ale or, or anything on Fridays? Exactly. Uh, Mike Anderson, who was in the, uh, the instrumentation uh, part of HP back then, was always more than willing to, to get things going at the steak and ale. He would go over and open a tab, and anybody from the office was, was welcome to go over there and, and join him in conversation. Um, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a five to six o'clock thing. It, it oftentimes, there was people that would, would close the uh, steak and ale down at the end of the, end of the day, and, and it, was, it was great camaraderie. You know, when you think about that, uh, you said the phrase, anybody from the office, and I think that's something that is strikes me as not something that every oh, single company for sure. would do. You know, it was it was a lot of camaraderie and it really strikes you when, when we get a hire from another company and you bring them in and they're just astounded by how we treat each other and how we rallied around profit sharing and the excitement on those announcements. And we did treat everybody with respect. You know, that's absolutely true. And why why do you think it was like that? How did that happen? I, I think it goes it goes back to the, you know, to, to to Dave and Bill, you know, and their 10 objectives or whatever we called them to run the company, you know, that people were number one or two or three, they were right up there. I mean, the first one was profit, because they always said we have to make a profit or we don't exist. Hiring people, letting them do their job, getting out of their way. And showing them respect and trust, it was. It started at the very top. It did, and uh, I, I, you know, we talk about the HP way was a term, and you, you, it sounds a little hokey, especially to people who weren't part of that. And but everybody who was who went through that kind of talks about the same thing. Uh, we we were just so very fortunate to grow up in that whole environment, and maybe took it for granted sometimes, but uh, we certainly tried to live up to it and enjoy it. I know a lot of the non-managers, if you will, would you know develop lifelong friendships, but also did a lot of did a lot of things together, sort of outside of outside of work that weren't work sponsored or anything. Was that true with you and your fellow management team as well? It seemed like everybody was you know friends, but there was a few of us that that shared common interests like fishing or golf, and one. One individual, uh, Owen Benson, organized a fishing trip, uh, 12 hours drive north in Ontario, Canada, and put together a trip on a houseboat. We'd go out for a week. In fact, it would take you, they would motor for six hours, six, eight hours um, before they would park the houseboat, and then you'd fish off of your own fishing boat. And I think it was probably Owen Benson, his brother-in-law, Ron Enruth and Bruce Gustafson, Greg Codis, and there was an open slot. I got invited one year, and 
I remember, you know, every night was a walleye fry and uh, Ron and Ruth would bring this cast iron skillet. I guess maybe it wasn't cast iron, but a steel skillet that was probably three feet in diameter. And we'd actually cook the fish on an open fire in this humongous fry pan uh, every night. And it was quite a ritual. In fact, I got in a little trouble for breaking ritual because, you know, they would all come back to the boat about dusk and, and start dinner prep. And, and my brother and I will fish anytime. So we said, we're going out after dinner. Owen Benson did not think that was such a good idea, but we, we, we broke rank and, and went out and we were probably out till 10, 12 PM. I, I can't really recall, but when we headed back, I could see a couple of these big torch lights that they took to a battery and shine out over the water and they were shining them. So it was easy to get back to the boat because it was like a beacon, but uh, they were calling our names and I thought, hmm, wasn't really expecting this kind of <laughs> reception, <laughs> but it was all in good fun. Really enjoyed those trips. Yeah. And, you know, it's the sort of thing that that kind of story has been repeated by, you know, small groups year after year after year. And you think about it, you do something like that on a personal level. And then, you know, maybe next week or two, you've got a customer issue that needs to be hammered out that's going to require everybody to get in a room and maybe do some things that aren't really part of their job description. Well, you've got these shared experiences and you know each other, you trust each other. It just makes it a little easier to get all that stuff done. So I think those things were were. And like you say, when we had big customer issues and we'd pull people in, not just from the service department, but, you know, sales would be involved and, you know, we'd all come together. It's like, how are we going to solve this for the customer? It's the way things should be done. And then you, later in your career, you, um, you know, you described managing teams that were a lot more remote. You know, when you, when you started, I'm sure, I mean, the company was smaller and things were very tightly associated with geographies. And, you know, I started in 83 and it was very much a St. Paul office and 2606. And, you know, um, everybody there kind of reported up through the office and, you know, that changed little by little. And then pretty dramatically, you know, over decades, right? So, you know, there's pros and cons to that, you know, but you experienced that firsthand, you know, what, what do you think about that evolution? I know it all comes down to the people and HP, I think, did a, a terrific job of, of identifying um, people that would fit into our culture. And yet we were Multicultured. I mean, on, on when I retired, I managed I think two people in the U.S., uh, four in Canada, and two in Guadalajara, and one in Costa Rica. We were a diverse team. It was uh, such an exciting time when we would get together. Usually annually, they allowed us to kind of get everybody together just for some camaraderie and and some face to face meetings. We had one in in Guadalajara and. Uh, you know, people were just so excited to finally see each other face to face and people you walk, you, you talk to two or three times a day on the phone, but to actually meet with them face to face. I just remember the first time we went down there. And of course, the local Guadalajara team was one to show us their very best. So they actually took us to Tequila, Mexico. We toured uh, Jose Cuervo's factory, if you will, there, bottled a, a bottle of uh, tequila to bring home. Just a, such a super time. Everybody remembers the trip. Kind of a throwback to the old steak and ale days. So, <laughs> well, Gary, I really appreciate you joining me um, as as we wrap this up. Um, 
you know, I'm sure people would be interested in, you know, what are you up to these days? I know you're retired, but where are you and what keeps you busy these days? Setting COVID aside, uh, my wife and I uh, do love to travel. We've been to Europe several times, uh, Argentina, because my son-in-law is from Argentina. We've been to South America a few times, Australia, Asia, Bali. We, we just travel whenever we can. And when I'm not doing that, I love to golf and play it more and more every year. And I'm part of a, a group of golfers at HP that you're very well familiar with called the Northwoods Group and planning our, our next excursion there in June, which would be Traverse City is our plan. So keeps me busy. Awesome. That's great. It's, it's, I love to hear about those travels, you know, especially when you, the story you told, here's this young kid basically from, from Iowa and ends up, uh, working very internationally and now traveling and retiring very internationally. It's a great story. It's a good life. Thanks, Gary. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. And I'm looking forward to the day when we can all get together again soon. Sounds great. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. And thank you especially for hanging with me as I'm learning how to do this podcast thing. Larpenter Life is produced solely by me, Dave Carey. It's definitely not affiliated or sponsored by HP in any way. I'd really like to know what you think of this, so please send me some feedback. Until next time, take care, everybody.